welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. You guys can be seated. Father, uh, we know from earlier in Hebrews that your word is living and active. It's like a sharp two-edged sword that can discern our thoughts and intentions your word is, is something that before it we're laid bare and we're seen, we're seen by you. And uh, Lord, because of your great grace in Jesus, we're not afraid of that. In fact, we invite it, Lord, as we open your word, we pray, Lord, that you would um, see us, know us, that you would discern our thoughts and intentions and the depths of who we are and that you would, um, any sin that you find, you'd forgive, you'd cover with the blood of Jesus and, and you'd fix it. Lord, we desire to live anew. We desire to give our whole selves to you. And so we pray that as we look upon your son Jesus and what he's done for us, we just pray that we would, like him, want to offer ourselves completely to you. That we wouldn't try to do any kind of replacing our obedience with some sort of religious deeds or good works, but we would wholly lean on your son Jesus and his righteousness. And change us, Lord. Make us new. We pray that we would leave here vastly different people than we came. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this was written in the first century, as we've talked about, and this was written to 
uh, first century Jews who had become Christians, and they were tempted to, to turn back and go back to Judaism. And by the time that this was written in the first century, the Jewish people had been offering animal sacrifices for over 1,300 years. Think about that. Think about being a part of a people that had been offering animal sacrifices for that long. And it made total sense to do it. I mean, obviously, God commanded it on Mount Sinai that they did it. When they offered this sacrifice, it was a way of saying, admitting their sin and that they needed God's grace. It was a way of acknowledging that they were trusting in God to forgive them. And it was something their people had already always done, right? You know, in the words of Fiddler on the Roof, it was tradition, right? Tradition. Anybody watch that? No? How many people know Fiddler? I feel like it's on the list with Pilgrim's Progress and stuff, so take care of that if you haven't. But it was tradition, and um, there was no reason to stop doing it. But then someday, just imagine you're a first century Jew, someone came up to you and told you that the Messiah had come, and they had offered the final sacrifice for your sin, and that these sacrificial things were no longer needed because Jesus had done what they all pointed to, and you believed. And now imagine that, you know, your neighbors, your family, your, your friends, they would notice they would notice that you stopped bringing sacrifices. They would notice that you stopped bringing sacrificial animals to the temple. How would they respond? It's kind of obvious, right? How would they respond? Would they think that you think you're perfect or something? You know, you don't need them anymore, eh? Or would they think that you had turned your back on the, the God of your ancestors? What's going on here? You can see how much pressure these first century Jewish Christians would be under to return to the sacrifices and the priests and the temple. And they probably even had in the back of their minds a little bit of a conscience concern of stopping. I mean, all your life you brought this sacrificial animal and now you're not doing it anymore. You might think, hmm, am I that certain? Maybe I should do a little bit as insurance. Maybe I should have them as like a backup policy or something like that, right? Am I totally sure? In this part of the letter, the author of Hebrews wants to assure them that the sacrifices were mere shadows of Jesus in the gospel. Look at verse 1. For since the law has a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, the law with its sacrifices and its priests and its temple were a shadow of Jesus in the gospel, a shadow of Christ. Okay? Let's think about shadows. What does a person's shadow do? You know? What does a person's shadow do? The shadow can give some indication of what the person looks like, depending on time of day, right? <laughs> it could be really tall, really short. But it gives some indication of the outline or the contour of a person. You know, you can have some sense of who they are by their shadow. A shadow could also kind of announce the arrival of a person. Imagine you're um, sitting on a park bench, you're reading a book, you're waiting for someone you love to show up, and out of the corner of your eye you see this, this shadow approach, and you go, I know that shadow, right? Then you look up and you see the one you love. The sacrifices, the priests in the temple were meant to do that. They were meant to be a shadow of the Messiah. So that when they saw him come, they would just look up from the shadows and they would see him. They would know the one they've been looking for because they would have seen the contour and the sacrifices. And when he arrived, they would look up from the shadows and they would see him and they would take hold of the reality. That's what it was meant to do. What, what else can a person's shadow do? Can your shadows do anything else? I mean, assuming you're not Peter Pan. Nothing, right? What's that? We can follow you, okay? Well, that's a good way to think about it, too, that the law and the sacrifices and everything were, were something that even now point to him. But your, your shadow can't do anything else, right? It can just point. 
That's all it can do. And you can see in verse 1, he makes this point very clear in verse 1. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered each year, make perfect those who draw near. They needed sinless perfection. We need sinless perfection before God. The sacrificial system couldn't do that. All it could do is remind them year by year of their need and cast a big shadow out to say this is what the one who is to come will look like. And the Old Testament people, they knew it didn't cleanse the way their sin. You can see that in verse 2. Look at it. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. But his point here is that just by the fact that the sacrifices keep being done shows they don't work. And he's got three concepts here he links. The concepts are perfection, conscience, and sacrifices ending. And his point is, if the worshiper were ever to get to a point where they feel like, okay, I'm perfect before God, their conscience would be clear and they'd stop bringing sacrifices. And he says, just by the very fact that the sacrifices keep coming, just by the fact of their mere repetition, they show that the people knew that they didn't take away their sin. They knew they weren't perfect, perfected by them. And the Old Testament priests knew, too. Take a look at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Do you guys feel the futility of that job description? Read it again. Notice the, words, the futile words here. One of them is stands. It just makes my feet sore thinking about it. You know, as you get older, I'm 49. I shouldn't probably be as sore as I am. Your feet start to hurt. You notice things like you just can't stand all the time, right? I'm going to sit down. But the futility of that, they stand. And then look at the word daily, repeatedly, same, and never. This is a depressing job. Imagine you go for an interview to this job, right? And then they ask you all your questions. They're like, oh, do you have any questions about the job? It's like, yeah, tell me what it's like. He goes, well, uh, it's, well, every one of us stands all day. Every day, we repeatedly offer the same, same sacrifices, and, and it never takes away sin. There's a lot of standing. There's a lot of doing the same thing over and over again, and nothing gets fixed. You'd be like, you okay, bro? <laughs> you know, like, I'm not okay. Because the law wasn't bad. The law wasn't in any way defective. It did exactly what God had designed it to do. The law was futile, frustrating. It was an endless merry-go-round for those who relied on it, just as God designed it to be, because it was meant to point to him. It was never meant to save. It was meant to be a shadow, a shadow of the one who would come and save them. And when they saw him, they were to you know, turn from the shadow, look up, and behold their Savior. And here's who they'd see. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is actually a quote. Do you see the quotation marks in your Bible? By the way, really good idea to look at your Bible, because this is really not nearly as much fun if you're not looking at it. So take a look at, we're in Hebrews 10, by the way, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. And what you see here in verse 5, take a look at it. There's quotation marks, right? They start in verse 5, they end down in verse 7. And this is a quotation of Psalm 40. 
actually. So he's quoting Psalm 40 on the lips of Christ. That's what he's doing. But in the original context, in Psalm 40, King David's declaring his deepest desire is to obey God fully. It's a beautiful statement he makes here. He's saying that God really wants our obedience, not just a bunch of sacrifices. And uh, we should think about that for a moment, because um, when we think about David's desire to obey God fully, it's a beautiful and appropriate thing to want to obey God with your whole life, right? With your body and your soul, with your whole self, with your thoughts and your actions and giving everything to God, right? It's a beautiful thing, and it's so appropriate. I mean, who else are you going to obey, right? You're going to obey somebody. Who else are you going to obey? Culture says, obey yourself. Be like, how's that going? Not well, right? I look at myself and I'm like, I don't think this guy knows what he's doing. Like, I don't think I want to obey him, right? It makes so much more sense, right, to obey God. I mean, God created you. He created you. He loves you more than anyone else does. He knows you better than anyone else does, right? He created all reality, and he knows exactly how the world works better than anyone else does. He knows the future. He guides its path. This is the one we should obey. We should obey him because he can never sin against us. You guys realize this? God can never sin against us. I love what Jackie Hill Perry says in her book, Holier Than Thou. She says this about this point. She goes, if God is holy, then he can't sin. And if God can't sin, he can't sin against me. And if he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? Okay, I'm going to read that one more time for the people in the back and for people that are just joining us cognitively right now. Let me read it to you again. (laughs) Jackie Hill Perry says this, If God is holy, then he can't sin. And if God can't sin, he can't sin against me. And if he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? He's the one we should obey. And he's been there for us over and over again. Okay, this quote is from Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is that, that amazing passage that you two did an amazing song on, which is about how King David was thanking God for how, how God drew him up out of the pit, out of the miry clay, right? Has God pulled you up out of a pit before? How many of you guys have been pulled up out of a pit? How many of you guys went right back in the pit and had to be pulled out again? Same day, okay. Yeah, he pulled you right up out of a pit, right? And then you're like, oh, whoops. You know? One of our family members, which shall remain nameless, he, um, he had AAA had to come out and inflate his tire. And, you know, he really should have gone to the tire shop and taken care of it, but he didn't because he had a whole bunch of fun stuff to do. And then it was flat the next day, and he calls AAA again. It's the same guy, <laughs> which is super awkward, right? Like, so, you know, they didn't talk about it, you know? Let's just pretend we've never seen each other before. But isn't that the way, you know? The Lord pulled me up out of a pit, and he's like, you know this is the same pit I just pulled you out of, right? I'm like, I do know. Isn't he the one we should obey, right? We should obey him. David says here that God really wants that. He doesn't want just a bunch of animal sacrifices. He wants our own lives offered to him. Verse 5, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, I've taken no pleasure. This is actually a really common theme in the Old Testament, that God doesn't want their sacrifices, which is interesting, right? Because he commanded their sacrifices. What's going on? Well, God didn't want the sacrifices as a substitute for their obedience, right? Remember when Saul 
he sinned against the Lord, and then he offered a sacrifice. And Samuel told him this, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. God wants our, our obedience, not just our sacrifices. We can't, you know, disobey his commands and then just smooth it over with some religious deeds. We try to do that. We can't do that. Why can't we do that? Because the Lord wants your heart, not your stuff. He said really powerfully in another place, you know, because they're offering all these animal sacrifices, and he's like, God says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. If I was hungry, I would not tell you. Isn't that amazing? I love that. He doesn't need it. He wants our hearts, not our stuff. He doesn't need our stuff, but he wants our hearts. Some people found the animal sacrifices easier than obeying God, right? It was easier for the humans, at least. It wasn't easier for the animals. But they might rationalize things like, okay, well, you know, I'm not really ready to break off this affair, but I will offer this offering to you. As if God's going to be like, well, that's cool. We'll call it good. No, right? Or I won't do honest work, but man, I'll tithe my dishonest gain. You're like, well, I am making money. No, God's not thinking that, right? He's not like, well, that's more income for me. No. Or I won't serve my family at home, but I'll do religious service in public. Right? I mean, some religious leaders will think things like, man, I know I should confess this sin. I know I should come clean on this. But look at all the good ministry I'm doing. No, that's a trap. That's a trap. We can't exchange religious acts for a lack of obedience. Guys, sacrifices are easier. <laughs> right? Obedience is harder because you have to deal with your heart. <laughs> you know, you have to deal with your heart. You have to wrestle with your own heart and come to a place where you're obeying him with your whole self. An animal sacrifice became a way of just saying, you know what? I'll just pay the fine instead, right? It's like God's like, no. So King David's like, I just want to offer my whole life to you. Isn't that what you guys want to do? You guys want to do that right now? You might not want to do that all the time, but right now after I just said what I just said, you're like, yes, right? You're at a good place right now, which is good, right? And it's real. Just because it's fleeting doesn't mean it's not real. It's real. You're really feeling like, yes, okay? Hebrews 10 says that what David wanted to do and what you want to do right now, offer your whole self to God, Jesus actually did. Psalm 40 is, was only perfectly ever sung by Jesus. Take a look at it again in verse 5. And notice when Christ said these words of Psalm 40. When does it say he said them? Take a look. When does it say he said these words? Yeah, so verse 5 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, he said these words as he's becoming incarnate, right? This is his incarnation song. This is the thing he said to the Father right before he became human. So Jesus has always existed as the Son of God, in eternity past, one of the three persons of the Trinity, he's preexistent. At one point, he became a human being. This is what he said as he became a human being. He said this, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. He's thinking about his body he's about to go into. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as is written me in the scroll of the book. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible that we have this? We have the words that Jesus spoke to the Father as he was coming into the world. Do people know this is here? Do people know this is here and just go about their business? Did you know this was here? What the Son of God said to the Father as he was becoming human, like we have the lines he said? Okay, I think that's amazing. Jesus came into the world to, to give 
what no sacrifice and no person ever could. He came to give God perfect, happy, heartfelt obedience. You know, the Son took on a body to become both our obedience and our sacrifice. I think this is really important in camping on just for a moment, which is that the gospel isn't just that Jesus was sacrificed to remove your sin. It is also that he lived an obedient life to be your righteousness. And if you don't know if there's a difference between those, there's a massive soul difference between those two things, okay? There's one mindset that's like, Jesus paid for my sin, and now I better go out there and build a righteous life and really make something of it, right? Make him proud. Like, get out there and really do something with that forgiveness you got, right? Okay, that is basically the Mormon gospel, okay? Just so you know. So there's a big difference, right? What the gospel says is it says not only did he sacrifice and remove all your sin, but the righteousness that he had throughout his whole life is your righteousness, okay? This is really cool. And theologians have parsed this out to make it easy to remember. Theologians call his death on the cross his passive obedience as he was hanging on the cross, and they call his whole life from his birth all the way to his death his active obedience, So in his death on the cross, you're forgiven, your sins are removed permanently. And then in his active obedience, he gives you this perfect life. And this is so important, guys. And if you get this, it is so freeing because it isn't like, you know, you have this slate and he wipes it clean. Slate, you know, like a chalkboard. Had all your sins on it, he wiped it clean. And then he goes like, build something on this now. Show us something great. That's not what he did. Wipes it clean, he breaks it in half, and he goes, here's Jesus' righteousness. And you're like, well, where did I put mine? He's like, all the earning that ever could be done has been done really long time ago, and I'm not looking for that from you. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. No other religion has that. Come to me if you find one. No other religion has that. That's incredible, and that's the truth, and that's what Jesus really, really did do. He didn't just remove our sin. He gives us his righteous life. And so your obedience this week may have been iffy, okay? May have been very iffy. But Jesus' obedience is still totally epic. And his obedience is your obedience. And that's what we have in verse 5. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, okay, so we have Christ. He's standing at the edge of heaven. No body yet, so floating. At the edge of heaven, he's looking down at earth. He's thinking about the body he's going to enter, right? This is right before the incarnation, right? And so he's standing at the ledge of heaven, about to become a human. Up here, he has, in heaven, he's got perfect peace. Down there, he looks and he sees all the chaos our sins caused, right? Up here, he's loved by the Father. Down there, he's going to be rejected by man. Up here, he's the happiest of all beings. Down there, he's going to be a man of sorrows, right? Up here, he's worshipped by angels. Down there, he's going to be harassed by demons, Up here, he's seated on a throne. Down there, he's going to hang on a cross. And then you know what he does? He turns to his father, and he says this. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. And then he goes, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written me in the scroll of the book. He's like, let's do this. And then he jumps, right? And then he becomes a human being, and he lives the most beautiful life. Way more beautiful than any animal sacrifice. Way more beautiful than we've ever tried to do on our best days. In one word, guys, Jesus' life was perfect, right? How else are we going to describe it? It was perfect. Totally perfect. You guys, anybody disagree? Anybody think, like, "Ah, I could use an update. It was kind of an older life, and 
This is a newer time. You know, maybe we should update him. Upgrades. You guys have any corrections? Anything where you're like, you know, I really didn't like how he did that thing with the... No, right? Yeah, that, you might want to watch out for lightning bolts if you're going to try that kind of thing. Any improvements, any upgrades? No, it was perfect. This is the perfect life, right? And here's the thing. Jesus' obedience was perfect, and here's the thing. You are perfect too if you're in him. That perfection is your perfection. Where do I get that from? Look at verse 14. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you trust in Jesus today? Have you accepted him as your savior? If so, you are already perfected. What's the tense there? What's the tense on that word perfected? Past tense, same in Greek. Actually, in Greek, it's a, it's a perfect tense, which is a past action that has ongoing results, right? It's past tense, right? You have been perfected. If you are in Christ, then you are perfect in God's sight. The book of Hebrews doesn't really develop the doctrine of justification like Paul's letters do. This is the equivalent, though. Perfected, right? Perfected. If you're in Christ, you are perfect according to God's standards. Which, by the way, are the only standards that matter because he's the only judge there is. This is one of the benefits, guys, of there being only one judge of the universe. There's only one judge of the universe who has standards that have been met through Jesus, and if you're in him, you are perfect in God's sight. Amen? Yeah, and notice, Jesus did this through one offering. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering. Isn't that cool? You guys remember the futility of the priest's work? Remember all the standing and the sore feet? Every priest standing daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Hear how Jesus replaces those words. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By one sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? 1,300 plus years of animal sacrifice, Jesus comes like, I did it. It's done. And notice that you, you, regular you, Christian you, you know, trusting in Jesus, have been perfected for all time. Look at verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has perfected for all time. Those are being sanctified. This is inalterable. You can't mess this up. You say, well, that's dangerous to tell people. I'm like, well, it says it in Hebrews, right? If you're trusting in Christ, you've been perfected for all time in God's sight. Isn't that amazing? You might say, well, I don't know. This doesn't describe me. I mean, my life isn't perfect. You know what I'd say? We know. We've seen it. It's obvious, right? Like, my life isn't perfect. You ever notice people saying that? I'm not perfect. You're always like, well, yeah. Like, that's why we're having this conversation. Do you know? When it speaks of perfect here, this is not what we all see. This is what God sees. This is Jesus' perfection rubbed all over you right? You're perfect in his sight. And bonus, check this out, you're being sanctified. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What's the tense there? Present. Now some of you guys want to acknowledge, some of you guys' Bibles don't show a present tense here. Um, In the Greek it is a present tense. So 
think NIV gets it as a present tense. ESV has it as a present tense. Some of your Bibles don't. I'm not here to pick on your Bible. But it is actually present tense in Greek there. So it's present tense, right? You're being sanctified. It's a process of transformation. You're being made more like Christ. So God is right now sanctifying those he's already perfected. It's a package deal. You don't get one without the other, which is amazing. This is a two-part gift you really want. And what's so cool about Hebrews 10, 14 is both of them are right there in that one verse, so you can't miss it, right? You got both, both parts of the gift of the gospel. You know, in Christ, you're both perfect, and then you're also in the process of sanctification. The gospel creates that heartfelt obedience that we saw in Psalm 40 from King David and the one we all acknowledged we want. Is it, the Spirit is in the process of creating a heartfelt obedience in us. So that our hearts become more and more like Jesus' heart. Jesus' heart as he, as he exclaimed it as he was coming to be incarnate. That we actually more and more want to do the things God's commanded. That we want to give him our whole lives. And so in Christ, we're both perfected for all time and in this process of being sanctified. You've been perfected for all time. I think that's important. It's the most important thing to, to realize as a Christian. You've been perfected for all time. That you're, you're secure in your relationship with God. No matter how you sin, no matter what happens today, no matter what happens tomorrow, you are secure in Christ. You've been perfected for all time. You're his, you're his greatly loved kid. You're always his kid. Some of you parents know, like, you know, no matter what my kid does, they're always my kid. This is on a way, way deeper level, right? Always be his kid, deeply loved. And he thinks of you as his perfect kid, by the way, just like his perfect kid Jesus, right? You're his greatly loved, perfected kid right? Isn't that cool? And at the same time, he's got you in this process of making you more and more like Christ. And guys, I think this is something our culture actually longs for. I think this is something our culture is looking for, but it's kind of bumping around in the dark, having a hard time finding it. Uh, Romans 1 talks about that the lost suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And as they're doing it, they can't help but know things that are true and have bits and pieces of of who God is and, and what he said and how he's shown himself in nature and all, in conscience and all these things. And so they'll have pieces that are right but not be able to put them together because of that suppression. But I think our culture is actually looking for this. They're, they're bumping around in the dark for this. And I'll show you. I think on the one hand, we see this, this desire in our culture for radical acceptance. Accept me, right? Accept me without reservation. You know, radical acceptance. People want to hear you're perfect the way you are. You're amazing. There's nothing at all wrong with you. Don't let anyone change you, right? In our culture, there's this deep insecurity. We want this kind of radical acceptance, like, please don't point out anything that's wrong with me, right? Our culture is very sensitive to any criticism. Criticism is an attack. It might be violence, right, for you to say anything critical of me, right? It's a desperation for a radical kind of acceptance, on the other hand, these same people ache for personal transformation, right? They ache for personal transformation. We know that those words, if somebody says, you're perfect, we know they're lying, right? We know that radical acceptance isn't true. We know we're not perfect. We know, we're, we know there's things that are seriously wrong with us, right, that need to change. And everybody knows this. I mean, look at the proliferation of therapy and, and self-help things out there, much of which is great and good and wonderful. But it says something. It says that we all know that we're 
deeply broken that something's really wrong with us. And then on the other hand, we're like, tell me I'm perfect or you're violent towards me. It's these two strains. It's like, how do these fit together, right? They seem really contradictory. Our culture has this obsession with radical acceptance and an ache to be changed. They, they say, tell me I'm perfect and then heal my brokenness. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? They say, tell me I'm perfect and heal my brokenness. Tell me there's nothing wrong with me and then please fix what's wrong with me. Right? Isn't that what everybody's crying out for? They say, tell me I'm beautiful and then cure my ugliness. Right? It sounds contradictory. How can both be true? So here we have two desires in our culture that are very strong that nothing in this world can satisfy. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? What if there was a way to hear you are perfect from the only judge that matters and I will heal your brokenness from the only one who can? What if that was available? What if you could hear, you are perfect from the only judge that matters, and I will heal all your brokenness from the only one who can? And guys, that's the gospel. It's the only way to be right with God, and it turns out it's the only way to bring together these two massive desires that people have out there. Only in the gospel is there a way to be declared perfect and yet also be in process of being transformed. And this gives the Christian a very interesting demeanor towards people. It creates a humble confidence. It creates a humble confidence the world can't give. It might give you some sort of a confidence that's not humble or a humility that's not confident. But you have this confidence knowing that you've been perfected for all time. That gives you some confidence. Some of you guys need more of that, by the way. You guys need more of that confidence, right? You've been perfected for all time. I think there should be some confidence that goes with that. Confidence towards God, right? Confidence in your actual people. Maybe not so brittle when people have, like, criticism against you, right? Because on the one hand, the worst thing that's ever been said of you was said at the cross, right? Your sin got Jesus killed. That should be the worst thing anyone's ever said, right? And yet you're loved and accepted. You're loved and accepted as if you were Christ himself. It's amazing. It should give you confidence. But it also makes us humble, right? Because we know, oh, well, it's all a gift, right? That perfection's all a gift. And there's still so many places he's yet to sanctify me. And that humble confidence comes, guys, when we lay down our sacrifices. We lay down any cause to try to be righteous on our own. And we put all our hope in his sacrifice. Think of how gutsy it was for those first century Jewish Christians to not go to the temple that first time. Think of how gutsy it was for them to stop bringing sacrifices. You know, their family would ask, why? You know, what are you doing? You know, do you think you're better than the rest of us? Or you don't believe in Yahweh anymore? What's going on? You know what they'd say? I don't need those sacrifices anymore. I've been perfected in Jesus. They create interesting conversation around the dinner table. They become so certain that Jesus had perfected them that suddenly, for the first time, their conscience was clear and they dropped their sacrifice. Look at verse 18. Where there is this forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. They no longer trusted in shadows. They looked up and they saw Jesus. And I think this morning, the Lord is certainly calling you to do something really similar. It's to look up, right? So stop looking at shadows. Stop looking at religious deeds that you could do. Stop looking at your own righteousness. Stop looking at the shadow and look up and see who the shadow is of. See Jesus himself. See him in all of his love for you saying on the cross, it is finished and then lay down your sacrifices for sin. 
Lay down your attempts to build your own righteousness and trust in him alone. Anything less, guys, is following Jesus' shadow around, which would be really weird, wouldn't it? Imagine one of his disciples, you know, the less smart one, just following the shadow around, right? It's strange. There's no powerful power in the shadow. You've got to look up. In the gospel, we look up, we see Christ, what he's done, we drop our sacrifices, and then we live lives of thankfulness for it. Let's pray. Father, we are just in awe of your word that you would give us this window into the incarnation, that we would have this experience of Christmas in September, um, seeing the words that your son Jesus said to you as he came into the world is incredible. And we thank you for this amazing gift he came to bring. We thank you for your love and your grace for us. We thank you along with King David in Psalm 40 for bringing us up out of the pit, the worst pit of all, the pit of our sin, the pit of destruction. You've taken us out of the miry clay and you've set our feet upon a rock and you've made our footsteps firm. We're so thankful for that. We just call out to you now, Lord, with an earnest desire. Continue to give us lives of great gratitude for being perfected for all time. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but bodies you've given to us. Fill our bodies with your spirit to do your will, O God. All God's people pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.